You are listening to the 3CR podcast of Psychedelia. Psychedelia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2pm. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. Good afternoon and welcome to uh, the show for this Sunday afternoon and what a what a wet week it's been in Melbourne, which um, which means many things for Melbourne. It means grass is greener, um, but it also means that um, the hills are alive with the smell of fungi, I guess. Um, my name's Nick. This is a show about drugs, about drug policy, about science, about the culture around it, about... Uh, everything that's going on, and a wide variety of drugs as well. We talk um, everything from, well, I mean, it was World to- World No Tobacco Day the other day, uh, and well, I should just introduce, I've got Ash sitting across from me. Ash. Afternoon. Um, what was it, World No it Tobacco Day? It was World day? No Tobacco Day. Right. Yeah, yeah it was, uh, I think it's the 31st of May. There was an event up in Sydney. Uh, some of the vaping groups put on a bit of an event up there. Um I guess for that community, it's an opportunity to highlight the benefits of vaping for shifting people from harmful tobacco use to less harmful vaping. And um, we go, you know, to the other end of the spectrum as well, where, um, uh, I, I mean, uh, I, I was speaking with um, Martin Williams from PRISM last night about the um, the ongoing, because the psilocybin research has only just just started, but there are some interesting developments um, already, but, you know, early days. Um, so anyway, that's that's what we do on the program. Uh, it is 3CR as well. Uh, if you want to find out uh, more about the things we talk about on the program, the website is 3cr.org.au. Uh, you can find our program page. You can find us on social media, um, where we post a lot of the stories that we're going to be... Um, telling you where you can also subscribe to the podcast and hear some of the specials a um, couple of recent specials that you might be interested in um, was the roadside drug testing panel at uh, Nimbin um, which is a you know it's becoming a, a bigger issue and in fact um, are, are there things we can talk about it now I mean well you can talk yeah. about the petition yeah. if you want yeah yeah okay well yeah we we, we will have a petition it's not quite up yet we're still waiting a um sponsorship or whatever it is no it's just it's been submitted to the clerks in yeah. the in the in the um legislative council they just need to process it and put it up online but right. um i that seems to be fine That's so it's go not ahead. not like an e-petition that we're talking about we're talking about a real petition that the parliamentarians have to look at uh and it's a in, in regards to the roadside drug testing program which has seen some controversies there was a story not too long ago um about a lady who was um uh who who was found uh innocent i guess um mm-hmm. because she had got a contact high apparently and had tested uh positive on a uh, roadside drug test yeah to a so contact the, high. the story there was um uh she'd claimed that she hadn't uh consumed cannabis for a quite a long time, several weeks to months, I'm not sure the exact period, but she'd been visiting a neighbour who um, had cancer and was using uh, cannabis to treat their cancer. So she, 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 was, she essentially argued that um, she hadn't actually consumed the drug, she had just passively been exposed to it you know, through an act of kindness, really, like looking after her neighbour. And that was an argument accepted by the magistrate, the prosecutor. They determined that the prosecutors had not produced enough evidence they said that it was impossible, and the magistrate determined that they hadn't put forward enough evidence to prove their case on that, that it was impossible to um, essentially be exposed to enough uh, passive cannabis smoke to then have a positive detection. And uh, this this is the problem. What we're talking about with these tests, these tests are not about impairment, so we're starting to focus down into really weird territory, um, trying to find bits of proof. But, I mean, the thing that we should be asking, and that it is the most important question, is, um, but are we making the roads safer? Safer? Yeah, so um, my, my boss, I work for a member of the Legislative Council, David Limbrick, and he asked a question in Parliament this week that essentially dove into the philosophy behind the, the drug testing regime. So the National Drug Driving uh, Working Group, that's a group of all of the things like TAC and all the various police agencies, have like a strategy document that's available online, and it essentially points out the the psychological underpinnings of um, of the the program, which is all based on deterrence theory. Um, and so, essentially, the drug driving program is supposed to model, uh, I guess, the success of the the drink driving regime, which has over ninety seven percent public support. But within that document, uh, it also states that um, 
what's probably more important than actually catching and prosecuting people is changing uh, the cultural landscape around what people consider to be acceptable in society, right? So we, we have a situation now where people accept that drink driving is problematic. You shouldn't do it. So if your mate has had too many beers, you'll be inclined to take the keys off them and go, no, 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 no. Just stay on the couch, mate. I'll hire you a taxi. I'll sort the car out tomorrow. That's a thing that's become normalized in society. Like smashing down a can for the road is not something that's generally done or generally accepted in the community anymore. And that's more significant than even catching the people that are drink driving because you're trying to change yes. behavior across society. Exactly. And so it recognizes that. And so he asked the question, well, how do you expect to get that kind of success with this program? Should we have a have a listen to his question in Parliament? I've oh, got sure. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, go so ahead. This, is, um, this is from the Victorian Legislative Council. Uh, it was earlier this week. Uh, yeah, it was on um, Tuesday, I think. Yep, uh, during question time with uh, David Limbrick. Mr Limbrick? Thank you, President. Mr Limbrick. Thank you, President. My question is for the Minister for Road Safety and the TAC. In answering questions from the community on their Facebook page relating to drug driving, the Transport Accident Commission stated that THC is generally only able to be detected up to 48 hours after use. Ian McGregor, Professor of Neuropharmacology, speaking about new research from the Lambert Initiative to the ABC last week, stated, we found on occasion the tests gave a false positive when people have very low levels of THC, and that is a concern for the carriage of justice. People are not impaired and they have not had cannabis for quite a long time. The Australian Lawyers Alliance stated last week that current driving, drug driving testing laws are not supported by science and are not fair to drivers who can lose their licence with no evidence of impaired driving. Does the Minister acknowledge that people in the community have lost their licence for drug driving offences who are not actually impaired and pose no significant risk to other road users? Minister. Continues on for a bit so, there. They have a bit of a... Yeah, you know. the, I mean, the answer from the, the Minister, the road oh, Minister... Should we just have a quick listen? Well, I mean, if you, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not much of an answer from what we have. President, I thank the member for his question and his interest in road safety. Um, there, are, um, there are a number of things that um, the evidence consistently tells us are contributing to the loss of lives and serious injury on our roads. They are um, drug and alcohol impairment, speed, fatigue and distraction. And they, and they often um, occur together. So um, it's not a... It's not unusual, unfortunately, um, where uh, you have uh, a crash investigation that tells you that um, the presence of drugs or alcohol uh, was combined with other really high-risk behaviours like not wearing a seatbelt or speeding, perhaps being on the phone at the same time. Um, so it's not um, that these things can be seen in isolation or that we need to tackle just one element. We need to be constantly making effort and investment and trying to urge behaviour change in the Victorian community. And indeed, um, this is a journey that Victoria has been on um, now for 50 years. Um, the uh, number of uh, you, you can probably stop it there. It, it doesn't no, get she more. She doesn't. <laughs> didn't quite answer the question there. Like, I, I mean, obviously, we, we understand that road safety is important. I don't think anybody's disagreeing on that. The point that David made, and the point that we're um, making in this petition, and the point that we're trying to make about this policy is that if you're spending millions of dollars and hours and hours, hundreds of hours of court time and police time on removing people from the road who aren't a danger from the road, then you're taking that away from being able to put that into resources to make people actually safer. So well, my, that's, it's a, tra a trade-off. My take on it is that um, not only does it not address the fact of actually driving while impaired from uh, illicit drugs, is I, I actually believe that it undermines the roadside breath testing regime as well. Um, there's a lot of people in the community that will warn people where drug buses are because, and the reason that they do that is not because they want drunk drivers on the road, it's because they see the drug driving regime as fundamentally unfair and unjust. Um, and I've done that myself. And there is no way, you know, I'm conflicted about it when I do that because I don't actually want somebody who's drunk to be able to av avoid detection. I think that they should be, be caught and lose their license if they're driving drunk. Most of the community accepts that. But because... The two things aren't separated in the way that they're, they're policed, right? Like these buses exist and they'll test for both alcohol and or drugs. 
And because the, the drug driving is fundamentally seen as unfair by such a wide uh, array of people in the community, I think that it actually undermines the drink driving regime as well. And I think it's important. Um, first, we should say uh, we've also got in the studio with us um, David Nichols. David, um, welcome to the program as well. All the way from the USA, or actually in, just in Northcote at the moment. But. Thanks for having me. It's great <laughs> to be here. Um, no, I was just going to say, I think it also, uh, it's important to acknowledge the fact that policing and drug interdiction happens along uh, political lines, right? Happens for... Uh, or happens is, is utilized as a tool of uh, class and, and racial control, uh, at least coming from the United States context. Based on talking to people here, it seems like there's an awful lot of similarities. And so I think in that context, it's really important not to fall into perhaps a trap of considering that these things are being done because there's scientific evidence that supports them. Mm. Um, and to consider what other sort of mechanisms of control and um, coercion come with that. That if we're if we're going to sort of wring our hands and pull our hair saying, well, gee, like it just doesn't match the facts. Why, why on earth are they doing this? We might not be able to come to a coherent conclusion. Whereas if we start looking at what sort of uh, interdiction, what sort of uh, access does this give? So for example, thinking about in the United States where we have a constitution and we have certain protections, at least on paper, um, mm. however well those actually get upheld is another question, but where a police officer can fundamentally subvert all of those by saying, well, you know, I smell cannabis in this car. I now have access. I now have probable cause uh, or my drug dog alerted and suggested there was cannabis. So, you know, we're going to go through and, and see what's here. It doesn't matter in the end if it's found or not found. Uh, there is some supposed probable cause given to engage in this incursion into your private space. So looking at, at what's going on here and looking at some of the odd laws, both, both I mean, the fact that this isn't about uh, impairment, the fact that you have some weird disposition dispossession laws around um, the seizure of your cars or property if you fail to yeah, well. <laughs> follow up based on these bizarre RDTs and, and the invasion of... Uh, well, it's, I think I think what 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 happens is there's a slow creep. Uh, laws get sold to us with with kind of rhetorical taglines um, where you've got you've got a story in mind that will sell the law. You can call the law, you know, something like the one punch laws, right in in Sydney. Um, but then that's also the lockout laws, and that's also you know, or, or, I mean, that's killed Sydney's culture. So there's this kind of flow-on effect that happens and um so the hoon laws um uh were sold to us as laws that were going to you know you've got the picture of a 19 year old hooning up and down 200 k's an hour in the 60 60 zone outside of you know primary school whatever um and you're getting rid of, rid of that guy and that's good of course you want to get rid of that guy off the road he's a menace but the reality of these things is that um it it goes far there's there's much more that can happen and and um, uh, I, I'm just... Oh, how much of this story should I... So, okay. I'll just... Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll explain myself. Because I've, I've had a um, uh, an experience just in this past week, still processing it a little bit, but I have a uh, uh, an impound notice for my car. So they want to take my car away. Uh, so my license was suspended. I didn't realise this because... Uh, I never heard about a court date over an RDT that happened. Um, just cl just to be clear, I was not driving impaired, um, never drive impaired, um, but I did return a positive on an RDT in New South Wales. Uh, the address was taken down wrong, and because the address was taken down wrong, I never received the court attendance notice, my license was suspended, and because I never knew about that, I was driving with a suspended license, and Actually, they were apparently being nice to me, according to, uh, you know, police talk. They always love to say that. They're doing you a favour by not taking your car immediately. They could have done me a favour by not turning up in the first place. Uh, but, yeah, um, so that's just a, that's a story for you. I suspect I'm not the only one who's had uh, things like this happen to me. And um, uh, it's, it's um, I, I, I mean, I wonder, especially in regional areas where people who might smoke a bit of cannabis and might get uh, get 
done and then they'll lose their license for three months how, how do you go and do your shopping how do you go and do your work if you're reliant on your vehicle like are we do we need to remove these people for three months from the road are, were they that much of a menace well uh, i've spent some time digging into the actual science of like how impaired are people when they consume cannabis uh interesting report actually came from the united states earlier this year the michigan drug driving uh report and um, what that stated is that it's actually quite hard to tell because there's a difference between people who have a built-up tolerance, so regular consumers, um, and people who uh, have consumed infrequently. They could consume the same amount of cam- cannabis and their impairment level would be vastly different. But the, t- the, the couple of things that it does affect, so it does seem to increase lane weaving. So that means you wiggle around in your lane more, but th- it doesn't mean that you cross out of your lane. So maybe you're just a bit more casual about <laughs> how straight you are on the road, right? Um, it can affect your uh, reaction time. So if something random happens, you can be less responsive. But with cannabis users, as opposed to people who consume alcohol or maybe some other illicit drugs, uh, cannabis users seem to adapt to that somewhat. So they slow down more. They slow down. They leave bigger gaps. Um, So to some extent, they kind of uh, moderate their driving to account for the fact that they may be a little bit slower. And, And all of this is not to try and justify people driving impaired. We people shouldn't drive impaired. That's again, we'll just like ground it in that. People don't drive impaired. It's a big vehicle. You've got the power of life in your hands. Don't don't mess it up. Uh, but what this is demonstrating is that the rationale that we've got in our heads, what what you were talking about, David, just we've got this expectation that there is this scientific rationale. We kind of think that, of course, if there's a law about it, it must be it must have made sense somewhere along the line. But no, no, it didn't. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so, so what, what, that report, what that report actually landed on in the end was that the only way to accurately determine whether somebody should be removed from the road or not is something like the field sobriety test yeah. that they do in the US. They, they were like, you pretty much can't do the saliva swabs because what it does, it, it doesn't often detect people who have recently consumed. So they may get a false negative. Um, and it's really hard to determine any kind of threshold limit. I mean, you can have a bit of a crack at it. Other jurisdictions have had a go at trying to set some threshold of how much THC, you know, means that you're impaired or not impaired. Um, but this report, which seemed to be very scientifically valid, you know, lots of data in it and all the rest of it, um, pretty much landed on, no, you kind of got to do an impairment test. Well, and as I understand it, there are uh, tests that exist that will do like eye tracking and things of that nature that will actually uh, attempt or are capable of discerning um, how what sort of focus is is waning or is present uh, and this it would be independent of substances so whether you're talking about use of amphetamines use of alcohol sleep deprivation right where at the end of the day what's being measured is impairment there were some studies going back a number of years um, I think like three, five years, something like that, where some of these methods were discussed. Uh, As far as I know, they've never been widely implemented in any jurisdiction. And also just bringing it back to this question of of impound notices and, and the lack of scientific or evidentiary basis for a lot of these laws. I think if we take a moment and consider... Uh, the societies we live in and unequal distribution of resources, wealth, things of that nature, which also isn't by accident. Um, at the point where your car is impounded, if you happen to pull down six figures plus in a given year, uh, that affects you fundamentally uh, in a fundamentally different way than if you make a tiny, tiny fraction of that. So you have laws that, again, are sort of reinforcing uh, class distinctions and allow for certain actors to pay to play in ways where the laws just don't have as great an impact. And I think without having conversations around how laws disproportionately affect poorer folks, uh, people of color, indigenous folks, and and looking at some of what I understand to be playing out and being discussed in Australia right now around public drunkenness and uh, other uh, oppressive tools that are ultimately codified in law, it seems like this is something that cuts not only across drug-using populations, but then uh, really invites a lot of more important conversations across society as a whole about how we relate to each other and what sort of social uh, organizations and accountability and um, shared responsibility we have and and 
what sort of so, enforcement we want to the yeah, extent we want that. The bigger, more important justice question instead of how many prisons do we need to build or however the discussion's going. It's uh, not, not a particularly useful discussion on justice because we need to be talking about those... Uh, about about the breadth of it and about how you're actually serving serving that justice. Does it make sense? Well, like, it's it's useful if you're looking to make money off of prison populations. At mm. that point, you know, how many prisons do we build and how many beds can we fill becomes a very relevant question. Just the numbers. You just got to fill in the numbers. Uh, Greg Barnes from the Australian Lawyers Alliance uh, has also been speaking uh, out against the uh, roadside drug testing uh, scheme saying you could have a person who has had some drugs on a weekend and is then driving on the Monday. There's nothing wrong with their driving at all. They just get caught on a roadside test and they lose their licence for a long time. So the Australian Lawyers Alliance are throwing their support behind uh, changes to the law uh, to to better reflect um, removing people when they're impaired rather than removing people for reasons that then get tied because it, it is entirely discretionary as well the police have a lot of discretionary power around these sorts of things so people i'm i know that i'm you know in a relatively well-off position so what happened to me it, not that bad it could have been far worse for other people especially like i i know I, i'm I like to think that I'm relatively confident with being able to speak to the police and understand what my rights are. I know a lot of other people won't be able to do that. And it's quite intimidating, especially since they they thought that I knew that I was... Why would why would I drive with a suspended licence? They thought that I knew and that I was doing something wrong. So they, they were already treating me like, you know... Ah, well, that yeah. raises an interesting question, right? Because you, you just a, a short while ago, asked what happens if you're in a rural area and you have no choice but to drive, right? Mm. So there might be those moments where the things that you need to get done in any given day, if you don't have somebody around capable of taking that on, if you have responsibilities... I mean, hell, if you had a court appearance that you had to make and you didn't have somebody who could drive you there, you might gamble and decide that uh, it's more, uh, it's it's better for you to drive yourself to that appearance so as not to be held in contempt or mm. to not then face further legal consequences. So you wind up in this very sort of odd it's shuffle. Labyrinth. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, just, it just eats you up. Um, this is in Psychedelia on 3CR. We're uh, talking here, Ash Blackwell and David Nichols, um, talking about the roadside drug testing scheme. But we'll talk about a couple of other things. I'll play a bit of music uh, right now. This is... Uh, Erotham? Erotime? Yeah, sure. Cherry picking on Psychedelia on 3CR. Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio 855 AM 3CR Digital 3cr.org.au uh, er- uh, You thought you knew well, is, is, Am I saying it right, I David? Uh, I, I was guessing Aerotime Something Aerotime. like that Yeah, that's because uh, time Like the like the, 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 the plant herb. The herb um, uh, There has been some other uh, Interesting news this week I, I, I flicked open the Herald Sun I was at a cafe or something the wind blew it accidentally in front of me. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, about page five, uh, half page uh, news article uh, with the headline, we'll stamp it out and a picture of Rainbow Serpent dance floor. What the hell? It's June. We're, are we still talking about Rainbow Rainbow Serpent things now? Is that how hard they want to hammer it? No, the story was about... Um, was about some, um, some, some uh, backpackers that had um, been ordering drugs through Australia Post or something and about it was all about Australia Post and it was about backpackers and had nothing to do with festivals or anything like that there was no indication that there was any connection whatsoever but I'm guessing that this French backpacker backpacker maybe went to Rainbow while he was in the city or something like that and but that's not mentioned and there's this big picture of the Rainbow Serpent dance floor and we'll stamp it out. And I just thought, well, it's an ongoing campaign of sorts. The, oh, know. yeah. It's very much like on, on the uh, radar for um, police and policing and the people that are opposed to, you know, certain kinds of alternative culture and drug use. Like when I went to do uh, some police observation at Inovanica Festival a couple of months back and, you know, I had some friendly chats with uh, some of the police there, you know, one of the main ones was I was, I just kind of casually commented. I'm like, seems like a 
pretty large resource allocation for a small festival with a good safety record. And um, and that was the, the answer from the police. Oh, you know, after Rainbow, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what do you mean after Rainbow? Mm. After the police took a really heavy hand and, you know. Acted. Yeah, they write their own story, don't they? Yeah. Like they write their own story and then they go, oh, see, it's happening like we said it would. And you're like, but it didn't. What? What are you talking about? It's, it feels like a little bit of magic. Uh, Jesse, mm. Ray, welcome. Hello. Um, <laughs> Jesse has just um, escaped New South Wales Whee! and joined us here in Victoria, where apparently it's slightly better. I'm not so sure. It's much better. Much better? <laughs> it's it's pretty difficult up there at the moment. The Sydney's sorry, broken. Sydney, it's not just Sydney, it's New South Wales. And it's the tricky part about New South Wales and particularly policing within festivals and that sort of thing is the size of the state. And all these regional areas have their their teams of police who may or may not have recently been uh, given a job, a top job in that region. Um, and what we're finding or what we found up there was the uh, relationship between locals in the towns, police, council, that sort of thing. Um, we're becoming a little bit bullying in some ways towards um, spaces and events and festivals that are family friendly. They're quite, quite safe in terms of their record. They've got, you know, some have been there for a decade without any major major occurrences. And it's um, it's easy on it's easy for us lefties to say on the one hand they're trying to Gladys is trying to kill culture and anything that's fun. And on the other hand, to say that, well, you know, drugs are bad, you shouldn't take them. And I, I believe there's something in the middle going on. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm going to say the, the, the word, I kind of hate the phrase, but it keeps popping up all the time lately. It's culture war. There's there's a, mm. there's a something that's been going on for for a long time. And I guess there has always been, there's always battles between different cultural elements, different ideas of what should be norms, different ideas of who should know what and how you should relate to one another. And it feels like maybe there is a different ethos um, that's uh, that's sort of in this, in this culture, especially expressed through the festival culture, which is kind of like, for the community of people who go to church every Sunday, this is a similar sort of thing in, in some ways. And I'm not trying to... I don't know. It's kind of hard to say that because then people go, oh, well, you just go get food, uh, birds. that's your church, you wanker. Like, it's not kind of like that, though, for people over a long time. It creates a... It, it, it requires a community to make these things work. It doesn't happen because everybody's, you know, trash and just wants to get there. It's, it happens because people are really, really care. They're really passionate about what's going on there. So... And for a lot of people, it's the first place they've found belonging, community and the values that they want to subscribe to that are healthy, wholesome values. And that's, you know, something that's unfortunately easily overlooked by all these reports and all this policing is that there's a massive contingent of festival goers who are sober. There's a massive contingent of families and young young people under the age of 10 um, and old people. Like I'm talking 50 plus, there's a huge contingent of party goers who are that age and you can't just say it's a bunch of 21-year-olds getting loose when it's that's not the full picture at all. But even to the extent that it is, you know, a bunch of 21-year-olds getting loose, I don't think that that's justifiable grounds for anything. Uh, I mean, there's no actual basis for prohibition, right? When you have uh, John Ehrlichman, advisor to Nixon, saying straight up, we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. So as you're pointing out that like people are encountering cultural values that they actually appreciate, people are finding ways within the incredibly atomized uh, capitalist society that we live in to act actually relate to each other, to actually break down some of those barriers and incredibly cold structures that we all encounter on a daily basis as we try to survive within these constructs, mm. uh, it, it's not entirely surprising then that they're, they're hostile towards that sort of uh, reorientation. And I think um, to whatever extent we can acknowledge the diversity of folks who are using and not using and also avoid falling into some of the potential moral traps around feeling defensive around drug use because folks have tried to put us on the back foot 
for at least my entire existence within the context of prohibition. And so sort of pointing out again that like, yes, all of these things are valid, whether whether we're altered, uh, whether we're not altered, whether we're altered through substances or other means of uh, consciousness exploration. Um, there's a whole bunch of valid approaches. Yeah, a few hundred people in a room all chanting together and clapping their hands in the air. If that doesn't alter your experience, but we don't ban that one. We, we give that one millions of dollars and uh, make him prime minister. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there's actually a really interesting parallel right there around meditation. There was a study that just came out in May saying that uh, 25% of people involved in the study had actually had increased issues of... Uh, things like psychosis, depressive episodes, mania, um, and and the notion of prohibiting uh, meditation, right? Seeing seeing all of these folks who are having difficult experiences or potentially uh, health issues of mental health issues on the back end of these difficult meditation experiences, I feel like most people would expect to get laughed out of a room if they proposed, "Hey, we might want to prohibit this sort of practice." Mm. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, that's that's. Uh, uh, I've I've lost where we're at. Where were well, we? Well, one thing that I wanted to maybe <laughs> one thing that I maybe wanted to raise with Jesse. So there was an article that came out Thursday of this week talking about the New South Wales quote high risk festivals mm. and how they had sixty six drug emergencies over summer. You were there. Yes. You worked at a lot of these festivals. I did. Um, do you maybe want to contextualize that for us? Uh, yes, I do. Um, <laughs> it's so easy for police and media to vilify drug users without vilifying alcohol users or um, spaces that people choose to use in. Um, they take one, maybe 5% of the picture and they use that as an easy, easy uh, headline to sell and to push. And for me, what I was seeing a lot of the time was not necessarily... Um, there were there were emergencies and, and people needed support in their health, and which they got great support at festivals. Some of these festivals had the best health support I've ever seen in rural settings. Um, but the reason they got into trouble was because of mixing things with alcohol, which was a really big one, which is never mentioned, and it can it, that can be the difference between life and death in a case um, because of how dehydrated alcohol makes you, and especially if it's a festival in forty degree heat rurally. Um, and the there's certain uh, environments that are I believe that are less safe to use in because of the culture that has been built around that environment. And for me personally, going to Doofs and going to smaller community-based festivals has been one of the safest environments I've ever been exposed to. Um, and things like clubs in the city, for example, that would be the further end of the spectrum, which is one of the more unsafe. And I see a lot of these. Um, otherwise known as high-risk festivals, they're not high-risk. The um, criteria for what makes a high-risk festival is extremely fluid and changeable day-to-day, depending on how much the Premier or police like that festival. Um, and it, it doesn't really match up with their safety record and the, the record of hospitalizations in the past. If you have any large number of people gathering in a space, whether it's a train station or a festival, there's going to be health issues because people have health issues, full stop, whether they're by themselves or they're together in a group. And to say that those are precipitated by drug use and that there's there's an epidemic is laughable because the epidemic is not that people alter their experience, it's that... Um, they need to. It's quite normal to. Um, and the epidemic is the, the the lies and the fear and the lack of support around helping them create he- healthier outcomes for themselves in that environment. So it's what I saw again and again and again is heads in the sand, blinkers on, fingers in their ears, people going, la, 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 I can't hear you, evidence doesn't count, and pushing forward with this ridiculous headline and this ridiculous hardline approach, which is not going to save lives and it's not going to help anyone. It's perfectly normal for people to explore the bounds of their existence and consciousness. And we all know, because we work in harm reduction, that alcohol is up there as one of the most harmful drugs to use. And yet, you, and so many deaths are caused by and prescription medications um, in this country. And yet, apparently, we have to worry about a few magic mushrooms um, and LSD, which are considered on the lower end of harm to self and society. So I... I do see it as a culture war, massively. So, one other quick question, mm. if I may. So, uh, you know, the, the whispers and rumours that we kind of hear down south here is um, some of these events, at least, 
there may have been an effect of the way that police were conducting themselves that may have uh, influenced people's decision to seek care early, mm -hmm. to go to a medical tent. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that's, that's valid, like on the Absolutely. ground? Absolutely. Absolutely. So there have been occasions when I was really successful in asking police politely to move on um, from outside the harm reduction space that we were working at um, because they, the, the, the coppers on the ground understood that we were trying to help as well and we were working towards the same goal, which is to get everyone home safely. And so they were happy to move along. And then as things heated up in the media, um, obviously there's more deaths, summer continues and it's hotter than ever. Uh, there was we noticed a more hardline approach and there were some festivals where there were 40 police outside the harm reduction space or the medical tent in a in a gauntlet essentially with their dogs and everything and it's um, something that I it, despite the fact it's been mentioned now in two reports to the premier and the the guidelines from Ministry of Health that police are not to hang out around the, the medical tent they're not to hang out around the medical compound which includes harm reduction spaces they do um, and I think this is because they're not having luck finding people out in the festival with drugs on them. They're not having luck finding dealers. And when people get into trouble, that's their first uh, clue as to who they can pin. And I think that's super dangerous. Not to mention things like that have been proven to increase harm, like illegal searches and uh, touching people who are unclothed without consent and these sorts of things. It's not okay. And that is supposed to be a safe environment. And Promoters do everything in their power to create a safe space, and I do see some wild wild cards in positions of authority going in there and abusing that safety um, for their own ego or because they want a promotion or they want to get their numbers up. I don't know why they do it, but it's happening. I I, I must like Rosie vision there uh, i like to think that people are actually trying to help or that they do think that they're trying to help but they don't understand what they don't understand that they're but i don't know there's a point at which you go nah i'm sorry you're being either willfully ignorant now or you're just stupid well Cause, like I don't no know. so there's two sides of the coin right it's the cop's job to enforce the law. They don't really care. It doesn't matter to them. Their opinion is irrelevant. If the law is the law, it's their job to enforce it. From a health perspective, we know that it's a stupid law, so that's why we're trying to fight policy and trying to get that change. But I've also seen police at these festivals who have helped in adverse um, health outcomes when there's been people who have been aggressive or violent. They've personally helped me heaps of times. I'm not best friends with a cop, neither do I am I enemies with them. But I think they're there is massive room for improvement. And one of the best things about the service that we provided was that we were t educating police about the effects of drugs, about how to approach people, how to recognise what sort of substance they might be under and therefore how to give the best care. And a lot of police were open to it and they were... You, could, you can tell the ones who have um, smoked spliffs back in the day, who have, who'd love to get, you know, blotto on the weekend. It's, it's, they, these are the ones that understand that it's completely normal to uh, change your state. And... Look, to, to give you an even clearer picture, because of the size of the state, because of the different regions of policing, um, I spoke with, I'm not going to name her, but I spoke with a police officer who's female, uh, an out lesbian who was in charge of her region and she'd just been promoted. And when I brought some of these complaints to her that punters had made at a festival about police um, aggression, that's the only way that you can get these things seen to is to make a report back to the police so that they can look into it. Of course, these people didn't want to do these reports. They were intimidated and scared. Uh, so I went on their behalf. And what I heard from this woman in power was, what can I do? These guys are rural wildcards. If I tell them directly not to do this, they will go ahead and do it in spite of me. They don't respect me. I'm an out female lesbian copper who's their boss and they've been trying to get this position for years so we have to take a really strategic approach in helping them to lessen the harm that they're giving and when I heard that I was like Jesus okay so this is this is not just state to state this is city country thinking this is misogynistic thinking it's like it goes broader than just pe people hate drugs and think they're bad it's power plays in some instances well, and also you have to look at the histories of policing, right? As I understand it, the police are a pretty old institution in this country. Uh, in the U.S., our police, our modern police force draws a direct lineage back to southern slave-catching gangs. And so when we see things like white supremacy, as the FBI does uh, investigations into police units across the country and finds that there are white supremacist gangs in them, or just looking at LAPD, you find all sorts of uh, different factions that actually have gang tattoos 
in the police department to identify them by their click, right? Um, these are things that we shouldn't be surprised in some cases that some of the dynamics of dominant culture, uh, whether we're talking patriarchy or white supremacy or, or any of those things are present because these institutions literally arose out of some of the foundational structures around those institutions. Mm. If you look at uh, the most recent recruit report for New South Wales Police, something ridiculous like two-thirds of new recruits have a mid- to high-range drink driving offence or an assault offence. Wow. Yep. Hmm. I was shocked when I read that, and I was like, you know what? <coughs> and that's, that's, not the, that's not who I want protecting me. Yeah. Mm. And then it was, sort of feeds back into what? What does it mean by culture war? What what do we mean by culture war? Because it's not just about the ideals that people put forward. It's also that other thing that people do when they know that they're guilty of something, but they think that they can hide from that guilt. They get super defensive about it, mm. and they they almost like try to pretend like everyone else has done the thing that they are actually doing. Projecting, yeah. yeah, projecting, projecting, projecting all the time because people aren't working through their own things. Uh, and, and they can get away with just, just continuing to project it onto people over and over. Um, it's in Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio, uh, sitting here in the studio with Ash Blackwell, David Nichols, and Jesse Ray. Uh, and we have been talking about, uh, well, a range of things this afternoon, range of policy things, especially around festivals. And, I mean, around the the the, the battley side of the, the drug war. And I know some, uh, well, there's not many who try to say that there's not a drug war. I mean, there, there's some people who, oh, there was never a drug war declared in Australia. It's like, yeah, it's a metaphor, you idiot. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, it's not, yeah, you're not like pointing guns at people all the time. But anyway, um, we're going to... I would like to say one oh, yeah. more thing, actually, if Do I it. could. Um, one thing I think that is missed entirely about this discussion about festivals and people using drugs is that it's assumed that all drugs are bad um, and all drug experiences are negative to self and others. And I think what a lot of the community find, it is their church. The dance floor is their space to connect to community, commune with God, whatever you want to call it, with nature, with their, with their kids. Um, but also the substances that people choose to take in these spaces tend to be highly connective, holy in some aspects and respectful. They're not things like, you know, with alcohol of course but if you look at that comparative to the ways alcohol is used in our society in Australia the harm done at festivals is nothing and it's yeah it's it's an easy sell on papers I think that's it uh, Inside earlier on 3CR My name's Fran Bodkin I'm a Starwall woman My dad was a mixture of Irish and Canadian Indian. Um, yeah, they made a great pair. Mum was the one who taught me a great deal of what I'd learned about our bush, about our culture and special places. We're in one now. And also my great nan. I didn't speak much to my grandma because I didn't particularly like her. Um, but my great nan was was a a beautiful little old lady. She's even then she came up just about came up to my shoulder, but she was a tiger. She was wonderful, and um, she also taught me an awful lot. Mum wrote down the stories for me, but it was nan who explained them and the importance of the stories and what I could learn from them, and. Um, yeah, and she also taught me a lot about the plants and that and how they need to grow together. Um, although they both gave me plant knowledge, it was her knowledge that I'm working on at the moment. It was great man's knowledge that I was working on now. And, uh, and it's, it's so interesting. It ties the medicines and the foods and, and the people together. This, this wonderful association. Science is made up of four parts. The white man's part, which is experimentation and measurement, and our part, which is observation and experience. And if you put the four together, you then have a continuum, a growth of the, the what would we call it, the science of knowledge. 
And that's what they taught me. And that's what I've been trying to teach others. <laughs> Most of my relatives died. The females died at 40. And I'd always thought I would too. Mum died at 40. And I always thought that I would be the same. And I thought, I better start writing everything down, <laughs> otherwise it'll be lost. Because I was single, they had no intention of ever getting married. And um, so that's when I started writing it all down. And uh, hoping that I would survive long enough to finish writing it down. Now I'm 80 odd, and I still haven't finished writing it all down. <laughs> so it's probably what's keeping me alive. What I'm doing at the same time of, as writing this big book is I'm actually sorting out the associations, at least of New South Wales, because fortunately um, when National Parks was first formed, the scientists there did a lot of work on going through the old notes, old explorer notes, and finding out you know, the associations. of Because they, those old botanists were wonderful. They, they put down every particular, every detail I was able to, to use them, gather the information that I needed, and it, was, it made, made it so interesting. And the fact that it was a, associations, and the associations are quite wonderful because I've also been working sort of at uni, finding out how all this happens. And like marrying the four, four remember the four, four parts of, of science? marrying the lot together because they've been walking separately through time for so long and uh, in putting them together by doing the associations it's quite wonderful because they knew in the old days we knew that the um, the plants needed to be growing together to produce some medicines that we needed to heal ourselves and uh, so I thought hmm yeah we're going to do this, I am going to do this. And so I put the associations together. I did some, or got some of the students to do some experiments at uni. And lo and behold, <laughs> our old knowledge worked. <laughs> and, um, and what it was, if the plants are growing within their associations, then um, the, the, plants, the, the medicines that they produce are going to be stronger. So what we found is that there's a mycorrhizal fungus which is in, within the sap of the eucalypts and it travels around the eucalypt and then accumulates in the leaves of the eucalypts. Then gradually, when they reach about six months old, the leaves fall from the tree. Everybody says the, the eucalypts are evergreen. Well, they are evergreen, but they're also deciduous, but they're deciduous all year round. They don't drop their leaves, you know, just in one, which is a real annoyance when you've got a swimming pool <laughs> but anyway that's beside the point the um, with the association the the mycorrhizal fungus accumulates in the leaves leaves eventually die and fall off fall down to the ground there they start to decay and the mycorrhizal fungus in the first rain then goes through the soil and attaches itself to the roots of the plants growing underneath the tree and then that enables, by attaching themselves to the root, it enables that plant to take up the nutrient that it needs to produce its medicine. And the, the more leaves, the stronger the medicine. The more eucalyptus leaves, the stronger the medicines. And uh, yeah, and that was the wonderful thing. When those plants die, the uh, nutrients that they produced then goes back into the roots of the eucalypts and it's taken up and the, med the uh, eucalyptus can make medicines too. See, we haven't, we've, we've been too busy studying the small bits. We haven't been studying the effect of the big bits. And that's what I'm, I'm doing at present and it's so exciting. <laughs> I hope it never stops. <laughs> YouTube.com forward slash entheo tv is where that's from that's an interview uh from the entheogenesis australis um youtube channel 
with Auntie Frances Bodkin, a Dorawal or elder from the uh, Bidigal clan of New South Wales, keeper and educator of Aboriginal knowledge and respected scientist, well known for her dedication to the environment and Indigenous culture. And she recently spoke uh, at the EGA Garden States event, um, which was on uh, Mother's Day, and we broadcast live from there. Um, haven't got too much time left. Um, so what's coming up over the next, like, what have we got? I mean, there's, there's more things on the horizon. Um, that we're going to be talking about very soon. We're going to be talking a lot more about the roadside drug testing. Uh, this uh, week, Fiona Patton, we were going to get her on the phone, um, but we'll, we'll have to do that next week because we've run out of time. Um, but she had a motion passed to um, for cannabis... So be, do you want me to yeah, walk you through you, it? Yeah, thanks. So, okay, so when Fiona <laughs> got elected, it was one of her election promises for the Reason Party to legalise cannabis this term. And so the first day of Parliament, she introduced a bill. Um, a little while back, she gave notice of a motion to refer that bill and the issue of cannabis to a joint select committee. Um, obviously, you need support of the government and other members of Parliament for something like that to happen. Uh, and she kind of reworked the motion so that it was more acceptable to a broader range of people and that has now been referred to uh, the Legal and Social Issues Committee uh, which is expected to report on it much next year um, and that was done with a vote of 27 for and 11 against so the opposition voted against it and Jeff Borman of the crossbench the rest of the crossbench I believe all supported it so 10 members um, uh, along with the government in the Legislative Council. So we are going to have a cannabis inquiry. Yes. So the, and it doesn't actually mean is. anything necessarily, but it does mean that um, there is the possibility uh, that there could be laws down the line that will be more likely to pass than, um, than not. Yeah, and this is it's in setting, line with the, the, way. The, the drug law reform inquiry that um, Fiona Patton initiated in the last parliament didn't actually make strong recommendations about cannabis. It essentially recommended that cannabis was such a big issue that it needed its own separate inquiry. And so this is essentially following on from the work that was done in the last parliament. Uh, just about out of time. Also, just letting you know that the World Ayahuasca Conference is on right now. Um, you'll be able to find some information about it on social media, on Twitter and on Facebook. We'll post a couple of links on our Facebook as well if you want to find out um, about some of the stuff uh, that's going on there, if that interests you. Uh, that's happening in Spain at the moment. Um, and for the next week, there's not. I don't see much exciting that's going on. Do you know anything exciting, Ash? Not that I'm aware of. No. We can take a breather, I think. <laughs> Enjoy the rest of your week. Uh, find our podcast, subscribe, um, jump on social media, get in touch with us, uh, tell us um, what we need to hear. Um, Querying the Air, up next. See ya. This is In Psychedelia. Comments, complaints, or contributions are welcome. Jump on the 3CR website. 3cr.org.au and head to the Encyclopedia program page. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter or send us an email. Encyclopedia does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. Our aim is to present the diverse intersections of psychoactive drugs and society. If you are concerned about your own drug use or a friend's drug use, DirectLine provides a free and confidential counselling service 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-800-888-236. And Psychedelia will be back on 3CR from 2pm next Sunday. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear in Psychedelia live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.